Are we ready? To, okay, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Well, it's good to have you. Uh, we've given you five minutes grace just because I know that lots of people were downstairs. I did see a sausage here and cups of tea, um, but I think it's gone now. And it's just great to have you. You're very, very welcome to the service. And uh, we're here, of course, to worship God. I want to read to you um, a picture um, that Isaiah had of God. And it's kind of a strange picture, maybe a little bit scary, but listen to it uh, if you would. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robes filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. A magnificent picture of the glory and the holiness of God and also of his mercy to us. And so we're going to stand and sing holy holy, holy. But I don't want you to think primarily of that. I want you to think primarily of the Lord Jesus, because he is holy, and he is merciful, and he is an even greater revelation of the picture of who our God is, because he is God. Intimacy and legacy, those are the topics that we cover. So one of the little sections we have, we brought a video if our Aaron could flip that on, it's about two and a half minutes long. Legacy. Old came in and asked me, "What is divorce?" I was part of a family and part of a family where, for the last several generations, there has been serial dysfunction. The last two generations, both sides of our family, my wife Bridget and I, both. Uh, There have been 25 marriages and 22 divorces. I'm afraid we're going to have a generation of people who at the end of their lives look back at a fork in the road where they headed toward isolation and loneliness and a loss of hope because they didn't stick it out when it got tough. If you look at my first cousins and and I, I think there are... uh, about 25 or so of us, there's one besides me who's currently living with, married to and living with a spouse. One. And what does it do to children when we're saying to them, Jesus loves his church and will never leave his church, when they see the image of that being ripped apart every single day in the pews around them or in the culture around them? For us, though, what had to happen is there had to be a stake in the ground moment. There had to be an understanding of where we've come from, how we've gotten here, and a determination that we don't continue that legacy. I think one of the greatest gifts you can really give 
to the next generation uh, is faithfulness and fidelity in, in, in marriage. Um, and I received that from my father, uh, which is a gift that uh, many are not able to, to receive. Uh, my parents this July are going to celebrate their 50th anniversary and uh, their golden anniversary. And to get to a golden anniversary means you've had to work through a lot of small problems and you had to trust the Lord through a lot of huge problems. Our marriage is not just about us. Our marriage is a picture of the gospel for a watching world. Uh, our marriage is uh, the central glue as an institution that is holding civilization together. I'm just telling you, it's, it's one of those things, it's one of those powerful witnesses to who God is and to the gospel to see a marriage not just functioning but thriving. What we know is this, we've seen the result of that other road and we're not traveling that one. Let your legacy is all you got. They're going to forget your name. They're not going to visit your tombstone. Nobody cares. But if my son and my daughters love Jesus Christ, and they tell their children to love Jesus Christ, then I think you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The biblical conception of uh, a couple's responsibility is transhistorical, transgenerational. It's looking to the future. The Bible talks about blessings to a thousand generations. Uh, if we do what we do faithfully, if we live up to the challenges we are given as a Christian couple, as a husband and wife and a mother and a father, then there will be generations we will never see nor imagine nor know about uh, that, will, that will have lives qualitatively and quantitatively better because of what we do right now with our children, those children with our grandchildren, our grandchildren with our great-grandchildren. That means we build a legacy. That means we make decisions not based just on the short term nor on the long term. People think long term means retirement in this society. The long term is your progeny, your descendants, you are, this is amazing, you are ancestors to someone yet to come. If you live life knowing you're an ancestor, that'll change the way you make your decisions, the way you live your life, the way you love your wife. So we are ancestors. That's uh, hard to take when you think, well, I feel old already. <laughs> so Moses was right. You know, Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 2, for this cause, a man should leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, cleave to her. They should become one flesh. They were naked and not ashamed. That verse is not only good for Genesis, but Jesus spoke of that in Mark. Paul wrote about it in, in Ephesians and Corinthians chapter 5 of Ephesians. That is amazing. That, that verse is so important. Marriage is far more than a cultural institution or an arrangement for a man and woman to meet the needs of companionships. Marriage represents a picture of the gospel, as this gentleman was speaking. Paul states that marriage is a mystery. If you read that in Genesis chapter 5, it is represented by Christ in the church. We are the, church, we are the bride of Christ, and he is the bridegroom. Gary Thomas quotes this, When you fight to stay intimate with each other, when you struggle to persevere and forgive, when you pray and work to defeat the personal demons and sin that war against your relationships, your fidelity and your very soul. You're not just fighting for your own happiness. You're fighting for your children, your grandchildren. You're fighting for the church's witness. You are fighting for the glory of God. Hope to see you there. We have a sign-up sheet that we're going to put out in the foyer after the service. Sue and I will be standing there to answer any questions. So if you're interested in being part of this small group,
of couples. Remember I said if you're married, want to be married, single, we invite you to be part of that. Thank you very much for listening. See you then. We're starting a new series. Let me move this around a little bit so you can see it. Um, we're starting a new series on 1 Corinthians. So that's Paul's first letter to the Christians who lived in Corinth. And this over here is where Corinth is. So that's quite near Athens, which would be in Greece nowadays. So when Paul wrote this letter, he was writing to people that he knew really well because he had lived in Corinth for a year and a half, and he told the people there the good news about Jesus. So in Acts 9, we've just been reading Acts 18, which is about Paul's time in Corinth, but way back in Acts 9, we find out about how Paul was given a special job to do. So God chose Paul to tell everyone the good news about Jesus, and that included Jews who had grown up knowing about God, and non-Jews who had not grown up knowing about God. And so Paul travelled all over the place doing just that. And we can read all about his adventures in the book of Acts. So this is his second missionary journey. And he went with Silas. And they started off over here in Antioch. And they went up here to Issus and to Tarsus, which is where Paul was from. And then they went to a couple of small towns like Derby and Lystra. And when they got to Lystra, they met Timothy. And he went with them for the rest of the journey. And then they went on to Iconium and a different Antioch and all the way along, all the way up here to Troas. And then something kind of strange happened because Paul had a dream and there was this man from Macedonia, which is this next door country here. And the man was saying, come and help us. So Paul said, right, that's what we're going to do. Now, when they were going all this long way here, uh, well, it's all these different countries here. They have the names on there, Galatia and so on. So they've gone up here. So this is now Turkey in uh-huh. modern days. And they had to go across the sea to get over to Macedonia. <laughs> so, so went up to Philippi, and they had some adventures in Philippi. So they went to all these places here, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and down to Athens, and then to Corinth. Now, some of the things that happened to them were really good, and some of them were really hard. So, But remember, we've heard that God chose Paul to do this job, and he helped him all the time because he was in charge. So some of the time when Paul told people about Jesus, they believed, and they decided to follow Jesus as well. So, for example, in Philippi, there was a woman called Lydia, And she and all her family decided to follow Jesus. But also when they were in Philippi, some people said, we don't like this message that you're giving us. 
And so they started a riot and had Paul and Silas thrown into prison. So that doesn't sound very good, does it? No. But even though it sounded like everything was going wrong, God was still in charge. And when Paul and Silas told the jailer about Jesus, he and his family believed as well. So some of the time, um, some people said, oh, we don't like the message that you're giving because you're saying that Jesus is the king. And we don't like that because there's a Roman Empire who, emperor who's in charge. So Paul and Silas had to sneak out of Thessalonica here because there was a riot about that. So it was kind of dangerous some of the time. But even though sometimes it seemed like things were going wrong, God was still in charge. And so now after all of those adventures, they get down here to Corinth. That's, that's where it is. And when they got there, Paul met Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. Now, they had lived in Italy, but they had to leave because the Roman emperor, Claudius, said, all Jews have to get out of Rome. And that kind of sounded bad, too. But even then, God was in charge because he used that situation so that Paul could meet up with Priscilla and Aquila and they had the same job. They were all tent makers. They made tents and they fixed tents and they worked together doing that. And while they were together, Paul also explained to them more about the good news about Jesus. Now, they already were followers of Jesus, but he explained more to them. And later on, they were able to sail across here to Ephesus and Priscilla and Aquila became leaders of the church in Ephesus because of that time that they'd spent with Paul. So... When Sil then Silas and Timothy came and joined Paul in Corinth, and Paul spent all his time teaching in the synagogue. The synagogue is kind of like the Jewish church. And he was uh, telling people the good news about Jesus, but some people didn't want to hear it. So Paul said, right, I'm going to tell all the people who are not Jewish about Jesus as well. And lots of people from Corinth believed and decided to follow Jesus because of what Paul told them. And there's a very important verse here that, we, uh, that Sue read out to us. In Acts chapter 18, verse 9, it says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a dream. Remember he already had that dream when the man from Macedonia was saying, come over to us, so he really listened to his dreams. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So because of that dream, Paul knew that he was safe to stay in Corinth for a long time telling people about Jesus. And I thought that verse sounded a lot like one that we read about in the Old Testament in Joshua, chapter 1, verse 9. Ooh, Joshua. <laughs> That's your name. No, so, my nickname. <laughs> so it, that, that other Joshua, um, God said, don't be afraid or discouraged, for I, the Lord your God, am with you wherever you go. So Paul stayed there, and even though some people weren't happy with what Paul was doing, and they brought him to the Roman court, God kept Paul safe just like he promised he would. So here are some things that I want you to remember when we're reading all about 1 Corinthians. God chose Paul to do the job, and he helped him all the time so that he could do it. Even when things seemed to be going wrong, God was still in charge. And even when bad things happened, he used that to help people learn more about Jesus. When Paul was writing to the people in Corinth, he knew them and he cared about them. 
So even if he had to say bad things to them, like, I don't like what you're doing, it was because he really cared about them. And it wasn't because he just wanted to get out to them. So that's kind of important to remember. And Paul knew from experience that God kept his promises because God had, done, had helped him all the time on this big, long journey. And it's the same today. God still keeps his promises to us today. And like Paul, our job is to tell people the good news about Jesus. And Jesus says the same things to us today that he did to Paul. Don't be afraid. Continue talking to the people. And don't be quiet because I am with you. So we can trust him to be with us. Well, folks, if you have your Bibles, um, I'd like you to open them at 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1. Um, That is page 1144. And I'll read that to you now um, as you're looking for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 1 and page 1144, I think, or thereabouts. I've had a cold all this week, so my voice doesn't sound as good as it should be, I think, but hopefully you'll be able to understand me. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Amen, and we thank God for his word to us. On Thursday, I was in a church house, uh, it's called Assembly Buildings now, and uh, there were probably about 140 of us from every presbytery uh, in the uh, in the island of Ireland. Uh, Six from every presbytery, three ministers and three elders. And uh, we were discussing the fallout in the Presbyterian church about same-sex marriage, about what a credible profession of faith is, and how we might pastor those people. And that information will come back to us as a Kirk session, and we will then be able to discuss that. What has happened in light of that in many churches and in Adelaide Road is that it has emerged that there are differences of opinion. That is reflected within the eldership and also in the membership. And this has been particularly evident in issues such as same-sex marriage, abortion, women in preaching roles, and there has been some criticism of the preaching and the direction that the church is taking. The elders have begun a process of listening, understanding, and do hope to address as best they can these issues. And it is in the light of this that I propose to study 1 Corinthians 
as the focus of the preaching in 2019. There are similarities between Corinth and Dublin and the Corinthian church and ARPC. Corinth was a prosperous seaport with a heady mixture of cultures and religion, a place where the church was squeezed by the culture and a place where the church contained true believers, gifted Christians, and yet was divided. The issues are not exactly the same, but they are instructive for us. The church in Corinth had its problems greater than ours, but it's still a church, a family, and and the answer is never to walk away. As I read this week, the church is a fellowship of sinners before it is a fellowship of saints. Another church will have its own problems because it's full of people. And what we are going to see today is that Corinth is a church. In fact, it is the church of God as we are. If you look at verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, I want that to resonate with you. You are the church of God in Adelaide Road. So never allow yourself to think that you are not God's people. And that God is not with us, even though this is a messy church at times. As you see in verse 4, we're all part of the family of God. And like Paul, verse 4, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Now, personally, that has been a great learning point for me. My natural sinful tendency is to be critical and to be judgmental. However, God has been working on my understanding of him, his love, his grace, his sovereignty. And though I might not always be able to say the word always, I do thank God for you. However, this word is not for me alone. It is for each of you. And so we are to give thanks always for each other because of the grace that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. And that is a huge challenge. And lastly, by way of introduction, we are a blessed church. God has blessed us with numbers, with people, with a servant heart, with caring people, with generous people, with faithful people, with prayerful people. He has answered our prayers often dramatically, with people coming from all over the world, with children and youth, with musicians and money, and with this building. This week, Annie was telling me that she was encouraged because her health is improving, and that is something to give thanks for. But she was encouraged because she received a text from a lady a long way away who had been contacted through the International Cafe. She came regularly. She studied the Bible. She'd never studied the Bible before. And she is now attending a church in her home country. And she's listening carefully to the word of God preached from this pulpit because that's how she heard that Annie was sick when she listened to the sermon two weeks ago. That is an incredible encouragement of the ministry of this church. So, Church of God in Adelaide Road in Dublin, 
let us listen to God and his encouragement to the church. And I invite us all to come and explore what God is saying to us and to talk about it and to pray about it with each other as we seek to be the family of God in this place. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love your church. We thank you that we are your church. We thank you, Father, that even though we are not perfect, that, Father, that you love us deeply. And I pray that you will help us to see that you're not finished with us, that you want us to learn from you and from each other. And I pray that you will help us to listen carefully to your word. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, folks, let me uh, just... forgot I had a PowerPoint here. Is that coming up there? Sorry, Aaron. Is it there? Yeah. So this is a letter, 1 Corinthians. Um, that'll be... We are a messy church. Some people may think we're quite messy. I'll not go into that all again. You see that uh, Corinth is there. I'll just leave that there for you, at Lorraine's map. Lorraine did a great job, by the way, Lorraine. You obviously read through the whole of Acts. <laughs> which was great, and uh, yeah, answered some questions for me. I have a little bit in this. I don't want to, to go too hard on this in that way. I just want to kind of give you a background to Corinth. It was a city on a narrow isthmus, and isthmus, by the way, is a narrow strip of land bordered on both sides by water, connecting two larger bodies of land. So it linked southern Greece with northern Greece, often called Macedonia and was a center for trade and commerce. It hosted the Isthmian Games, second in size and importance to the Olympic Games in Athens. Politically, it had been part of an organized Greek city rebellion against the Romans in the sort of early BC, 146 BC. And the Romans had got angry with them and had absolutely destroyed Corinth. They had just raised it to the ground. Julius Caesar recognized its importance as a Roman emperor, and he had it rebuilt in A.D. 46. And it was settled by lots of military persons from all over the empire, with traders and merchants, and it became prosperous, cosmopolitan, licentious, and a center of about a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people, which was quite big for cities in that day. It was dominated by a hill... I think I have one something here. Is that? Yeah, so that's the isthmus, okay? You see what that is, where Corinth is. This is the hill. This is called the Acrocorinth. It is 1,850 feet, and I had to Google it. It's 864 meters in height. It had a huge temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And within that temple, there was about 1,000 female priests, and they were sacred prostitutes who walked down into the city at night as part of their outreach. At the foot of the Acrocorinth was another temple to Melisertes, the deity of navigation. And they also within Corinth worshipped Apollo, a god of music, poetry, and song. And hence Corinth was strong culturally. It was good at music, it was good at poetry, and all of those things. But the thing about Apollo and his worship was that they were fascinated with the male figure. 
Uh, So there were numerous statues and friezes of male nudity, and it was the center for male homosexual practice in the area. And as J.C. Pollock said, if the love of Christ Jesus could take root in Corinth, the most populated, wealthy, and commercially minded and sex-obsessed city in Eastern Europe, it could prove popular anywhere. So that's the context politically and geographically. So then Paul comes to Corinth, and uh, Lorraine has already told us about that, but I want you to look at chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, and you'll see that... um, I don't know, is there another slide there? Um, What have we got? No, it's okay. Next one. Yeah, that's okay. We'll leave it there in that sense. So Paul is in Corinth. If you look at 2 and 3, I want you to try and get this picture of this city that is just, it's a big city for Paul. It's a confident city. Um, It has lots of people in it who just know their own mind and doing their own thing. And you get this picture that Paul maybe came here really, as it were, very confident. But that's not the case. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my, pers- my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul had just come from Athens in 181, uh, Acts 18.1, where the city hadn't responded to the gospel. So he's depressed in that sense. He's not sure where, what's going to be happening. He had a team, as Lorraine was saying, of Silas and Timothy, and they weren't with him at the start. That's why he was absolutely delighted to find Aquila and Priscilla, who were Jewish tent makers like himself. And he stayed with them, and they were converted. And eventually he did gather a team around him, Aquila, Priscilla, Silas, Timothy, Crispus, and Sosthenes, and Titius, Justus, or Gaius, who's mentioned in 1.14. So he has, he comes in weakness. God is good to him and give him Aquila and Priscilla. He builds a team, and he begins to proclaim the gospel, as Lorraine was saying to us, probably in March, A.D. 50. He stays for 18 months, and so he left in September, A.D. 51. We think that he wrote the letter in A.D. 53, at the end of it, or the beginning of A.D. 54, when he was in Ephesus. Why did he write? Well, if you look in chapter 1, verse 11, you'll see that there were issues that were dividing them. My brother, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And so there's a debate about what these are, and we'll look at those as time goes on. And he wrote a number of letters. If you look in chapter 5 and verse 9, you'll see that I have written to you in my letter not to associate it with sexually immoral people. So this is a letter that he's written previous to 1 Corinthians, and the question is, it's called the Corinthian Correspondence. Uh, Were there lots of lost letters, or do we have them all in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? And you can read about that, Uh, but some people think that that letter that's mentioned is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 7, 1, and it's just a little letter about sexual immorality. So is that the case? I'm not quite sure, uh, but I can leave you to think about that. But he did write because of the issues that there were. And you will find out the dividing issues as we proceed, things like knowledge and wisdom and power, things that don't really mean a great deal to us, but did to them, their so-called buzzwords of the day. Spiritual gifts, which 
has divided the church, end times, what do we believe about the end? Human leaders, that's a big thing. Apollos and Paul and all these different leaders. Um, and at the heart, what does Paul, are, you know, what, what he's saddened about, by the way, in verses 29 and 30, uh, one is their arrogance. Uh, he has, the church has become arrogant. It has become divided over its opinions. It thinks one opinion's better than the other. Um, and what does he argue for in chapter 13? Love. This is why he, he really speaks about love. And he concludes his letter, doesn't he, in chapter 16? Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be people of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. And that's the message of Corinthians. Do everything in love. So let's look at this um, in verses 1 to 9, just very quickly. When a church has problems, the pastor tends to look at his call, as I have done with you. So what is his call? Where does it come from? How secure is it? Is he the person that God wants him to be in this place? And if you look at this, this is, this is what really struck me when I read this. And there are lots of different ways to approach this, but I'm going to just do it in this idea that Paul was called. If you look in verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. So who calls? I want to say that God calls. You see there, it's by the will of God. It's not his own choosing. Paul was minding his own business, wasn't he, on the, on the road to Damascus? God called him and he told him at that point, Lorraine was right, you will be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he was to be. So the God, the creator, God, the creator of the universe, God, the sovereign God, the almighty God, says, Paul... You are to be my apostle. So he comes with God-given authority. He has been given a God-given rule. And that's why he's concerned, and that's why he writes, and that's why the church needs to listen to what Paul says. So Paul is called by God, and he has authority, and we need to listen to him. Secondly, in verse 2, you see that the church is called. Just flick on there, Aaron. I might as well get you to do that as an apostle. The church is called to be holy. Okay, we'll stop there. In verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Folks, I want you to be encouraged because of who you are in Christ. Because Paul is describing the members of the, of the church here, and he's saying that you are sanctified in Christ. You are sanctified if you are in Christ. Now, Paul is going to be tough on this church, but he's certain that those in Christ are set apart. That's what it means. You are set apart. You're called to be holy. And if you stay with me, I just want to kind of walk through the theology of this very quickly. In accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were both declared righteous 
That means you were justified and you were sanctified. You were set apart. So you were declared righteous and you were set apart as holy and to be holy. Some Bibles might say you were called to be saints. At the moment of being saved, you were set free not only from the penalty of sin, but you were set free from the power of sin. And you find at that moment in time that you have no love of sinning. I remember that moment in my own life, and I was thinking about that this morning, that's why I'll say it. When I was at school, I used to use bad language. I used to tell smutty jokes. And I remember, as a young teenager, God saying, you should never do that. And I had no love for it anyway. And I stopped. And I think I've told you before, I honestly believe that I have not cursed since I was 14 years of age. Now, it may be different for you, but if you have Christ in you, you are changed. And you see the power of sin is broken. You have no love for it. You do not want to go in that way. Why? Because you are sanctified. And that means, by the way, you cannot stay the same. Nor can you claim that you don't have the ability to change. Nor can you say that you are defeated by sin. Because there's an expectation in every true believer that we will become like Jesus, more holy, knowing increasing sanctification. That's why Paul goes on later on in this letter to talk about what they need to be doing. That is never fully realized in us because of this body of death that we have. It is only completed at death when we are said to be glorified. It affects the whole person. It affects how we think. We are to think to please Jesus. It affects how we act. We are to act to please Jesus. It affects our emotions. We should be more stable. We should be more joyful. We should be more of the things of Christ because of the reality of who we have in us. And we are, um, yeah, because of our union with Christ. And that, of course, is worked out through the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 30, you'll see it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom for God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. We have these things because we are in Christ but we also must live actively in this way. We are to shun immorality. We are to live by his wisdom. We are to wrestle with sin. We are not to give in to thoughts of temptation, whatever that might be for us. As Paul said in another letter to the Philippians, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So, folks, you are sanctified by your being in Christ. That's passive, and we are sanctified by our continual obedience to the gospel. We repent, we believe, we obey. That is our calling. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, we are called to be holy together. And lastly, go on Aaron then, We are called into fellowship with Jesus. Verse 9. God who has called you 
into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Folks, in the, in the light of the enormity of what has been given us in the gospel, sanctification, Paul looks at the church with amazing generosity and hope. He's still going to outline its feelings, its pride, its selfishness, its disunity, its tendency to sexual sin, but he is not in despair. He is thankful and he is positive. And if you read these verses from verse 4 on, why is he thankful? In verses 4 to 6, look, he is saying that you, and I'm talking about you in front of me and me, we have been enriched in every way because we have Christ. Now, we'll come back to these problems. They, they wanted knowledge from outside. They wanted to be able to speak with eloquence. They were really embracing the culture of their day. They wanted this gnosis or this kind of hidden knowledge. They were listening to the Greek philosophers. And Paul says, no, you don't need those things because you have Christ. You have everything you need. And in verse 7, he goes, he says, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. As a church, God gives us the gifts that we want. We have people who are experts in marriage. We have people who are good with children. We have people who can cater. We have people who can play music. We have people with different gifts because God gives them to us. And he instills them within the church so that we might use them. They, by the way, Corinthians is a gifted church. They had people who could do things well. Paul knew it, and he gave thanks for it. And not only that, not only are they enriched in every way, not only are they lacking in no spiritual gift, but they are promised security. Look at verse 8. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing, no division, no attack from outside, nothing that can take away the security that they have in Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. We will be glorified. The process of sanctification will be completed. And look at verse 9, because God is faithful. As one commentator said, the grace that saves us is the grace that keeps us. And as I, this is the verse that really God has spoken to me and I shared with the elders at the session meeting on Tuesday. Uh, Colossians 2, 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That's the vision. That's the reality. We have everything we need. We're enriched in every way. We have every special blessing, and we will be kept to the end. So folks, as individual Christians, and as a church, even a messy church, if you want to say that of us, we are called into wonderful fellowship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and in him we are absolutely secure. We have all that we need for our life in him, and he is faithful. 
The other thing I noticed in this is that the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, is used nine times in these nine verses. Jesus is the center of who we are and all that we have. And as believers in his gospel message, we are in him. We belong together, not apart. In fact, we belong with everyone in the whole world who call upon that name. Look at verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. It is my privilege to go to the Irish Preachers Conference every January, and it is just amazing to see what God is doing in all these little towns and villages around Ireland. And it's just amazing because they're not Presbyterian. Some of them are, but not many. They're not all Baptists, some Pentecostals, many independent churches. But we are united. We belong together. Because the scriptures and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ are our central reality. So folks, as we begin this series, and I know that it's not been easy for many of us, it is my hope that we will see the hope that we have in him. We are sanctified. We have all that we need. We will be presented blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. But here's the challenge. We are to stick together as a family. We are called to be holy, working out the implications of what it means to be the people of God in this place at this time. And I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. That is our hope. That is is our challenge. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful and wonderful vision of the church. We thank you that it's possible because of the beauty and the, and the vision and the self-sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that we will be like him, as we submit ourselves to you and to one another, and that, Father, that you will do a good work in this place, in your people. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks, let's worship God as we give our offering to him just now. Let us pray. This morning our prayers will concentrate on the Church of God here in Adelaide Road, the family of God here. Let us pray. Oh, how sweet the glorious message, simple faith may claim. Yesterday, 
today, forever, Jesus is the same. Still he loves to save the sinful, heal the sick and lame, cheer the mourner, still the tempest, glory to his name. We come to you in prayer in the name of the never-changing Jesus and bring before him the needs of this congregation of his people. We ask God's blessing on all aspects of the ministry, from the very youngest to the oldest. We pray especially for Sam as he faithfully declares your word each week and as he dutifully fulfills his pastoral duties. We pray for the elders in their oversight of the congregation. We lovingly remember those who are ill. We pray your continued healing for Annie, asking that she may make a good and complete recovery. We think of John Thompson in hospital and for Myrtle in her care for him. We bring to you John Reed in his illness and for Jenny who takes care of him. We ask for your undertaking for their son Jack as he awaits joint replacement surgery. Lord, you know all things, so we ask for your blessing on all who are sick. We think of those who have cares for elderly relatives and pray for safety and travel as they visit them whilst juggling that with work and home responsibilities. In that regard, we pray for Anne Gillanders, Jennifer Wilson, Lorna Carson and Rosalinda Schutt. We come to you, the God of all comfort, seeking your solace for the daughters of Tom Edge, Alison, Joyce and Leslie, and for all those who are grieving for loved ones, whether recently or even many years ago. While we mourn with those who mourn, we rejoice with those who rejoice and thank God for the safe arrival of the baby son of Peter and Judy. We pray that you will give them all that they need at this time. Finally, we thank God for each other and we pray for each other that this week may, we may honour you in all that we do, whether at home, in school, college, work and in our leisure time activities. What we ask for ourselves, we pray for all those who are worshipping with us today. These prayers we offer in the name of our never-changing Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Folks, let's stand and sing really a great hymn about the church. The church is one foundation. Is Jesus